It's so wonderful to be here. As Michael said, this is a bit of a home away from home for us, especially in the Anglican world. Uh, when we come back, uh, we try to get here as much as we can, even if it's just a few times over the summer, uh, and visit maybe over the holidays and things like that. We've kind of snuck in in the back a handful of times. Uh, and it's just a joy to be here. Michael and I really share a, a similar heart in so many different ways, similar backgrounds into the Anglican Church, uh, as well as now that we're here in the Anglican Church, we just kind of share a similar way of seeing the world and seeing God. Uh, the Anglican Church, in a wonderful way, has lots of diversity, uh, as you've probably figured out at this point. Uh, and, and so it's always wonderful to also find a good friend as well, uh, that you just share a common vision of things uh, with. And, and uh, Michael and I have found that in one another. So for that reason, he asked one of his good friends to preach on something so simple as Mary here. You know, give that to the visiting priest, of course. You know, let him say whatever and then leave and say, oh, whatever, you know, forget about what that guy said, you know. Uh, no, it's so wonderful to, to, to get to actually speak on uh, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, as the church has said throughout the ages. Uh, at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family, where I'm working right now on my doctoral work, uh, much of what we, we talk about is what John Paul II called a, a culture of life or a civilization of love, one that starts in the very life of the Trinity, a communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a communion of love. And out of that communion and overflow of love, God creates the world. And there at the very heart of the world is the church that lives receiving the love, eternal love of God, and, and, and from that receptivity turns and loves the world. And Mary is a wonderful picture of the church for us, this complete receptivity of the love of God and an overflow of fruitfulness, of fecundity that she has in giving birth to many sons and daughters, those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the central things we do at the Institute is, is think about what maybe a theology of creation would look like. Because we're studying marriage in the family, we want to think about, well, what's just creation? What's nature? And I also think that... Uh, and what, by the way, when I say creation, I'm not speaking of like some like historical, archaeological dig or whatever to, to prove any time or place. Uh, what I mean is a, relation, a certain relation with God. When we say creation, what we mean is, is a relation to a creator. And again, I, I think that uh, Mary helps us think through these things. In fact, I would even go as far to say maybe that our understanding of Mary is a good picture for us in the way that we understand creation. And, and to the extent that we sort of understand her and think about her and maybe care about her is the extent that we will think about and care for creation as God has given it and as he intends it to be. But just right off, I know my setting here, and, and maybe some of you think, well, what about Jesus? You know, you get a chance to preach a sermon, why aren't you talking about Jesus, right? And that's a fair, you know, thing to, to see. And you, and you maybe, you're, well, what about these Marian devotions? Aren't those a little over the top? And, and the prayers especially, right? And the, and the critique comes down to one of just simple idolatry, Right? Care for someone and devotion to somebody and prayers even directed towards someone that's not God, to a creature. Right? And so the question is one, is this, is this idolatry to give a certain amount of attention and adoration, maybe even a word some people might use, towards Mary? Another question we could ask, well, should we love God or should we love the world? Should we love the creator or should we love his creature? Of course, the answer to this is yes. Yes. But the, it's incredibly important to get the order right. Right? It's incredibly important to get the order right and to understand what it would then mean to love the creature in light of the creator and what it would mean to love the creator in light of his creation. It would be very strange, I mean, as a father and for those of you that are maybe parents, for someone to, to, to sort of adore you and give you more adoration by lessening your children. 
right? And I think there's this tendency at times to think that we adore God by making less of his creation out of fear, maybe that we would, be, we would you know, worship it or, or turn it into an idol. And I think sometimes maybe our thinking on, on Mary on, can, can at times tends towards this. And of course, the church has, has always said, even at times maybe it's been misinterpreted or, or, or not lived out correctly, has, has never, the church has never in the East or in the West uh, promoted any worship of Mary. She's an icon of faith, an icon of faith, of what it means to have faith in God. I direct you to John Paul II's uh, encyclical Redemptor Mater on this, uh, the, the mother of the Redeemer. It's all about the faith of Mary. It's completely biblical text, just his reading of what Mary's faith looked like. And of course, in saying that she's an icon of faith just means that she is a picture of the creature under grace. That whatever we say about Mary, we say about, we say about the creature under grace and a complete gift that God has done for her and on her behalf. And what Mary has said is, yes. Really, one of the, the, I think one of the, the beautiful things about Scripture is reading it as a whole. And you can say, you have, at the beginning, God says, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then finally, creation responds, let it be done unto me. You see, Mary is creation's response to God, the perfect response to God under grace, the grace that God has given us. But it is a bit confusing because there really aren't that many passages of Scripture on Mary, are there? Louis Bouillet, he's uh, a Catholic priest, points this out, actually. So you can appreciate this as a Catholic priest pointing this out, right? There's really not that many texts on Mary in the Bible. So what's, why is she such a big deal? Or should she really be that big of a deal, you know? There's much more is said about David, right? Or there's much more is said about Moses. Why is, should Mary have any significance? Isn't she just like everyone else? Bouillet writes this, though. He says, it's, it seems as though when talking about Mary, there are com- we're confined to a few passages, such as in St. Luke, chapters 1 and 2, one of which we heard read this morning. In St. Matthew, again, chapters 1 and 2, a few passages in St. John's Gospel. You have chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Then you have in chapter 19, you have Mary at the foot of the cross. Anything further can be t- obtained only by means of forced exegesis, or so it seems. However, this view rests on a misunderstanding of the extent to which true Marian theology is at once a requirement and an outcome of the whole Word of God. The few passages in which Mary is mentioned by name are, as it were, the core of several great scriptural themes, which so far from occurring as a kind of byproduct of revelation, some sort of tradition extrinsic to the Bible, we are in fact bound, it's in fact bound intimately up with the principal teachings of the Bible. You might call it the fruit of Scripture, if you will. These, in turn, once they find in the Virgin of the Gospels the beginning of their development, themselves unfold around her as their center. The great Marian tradition is simply this development, this fruit. We shall see in it how the church, reading the Marian texts of the New Testament, came to recognize what in the old had its bearings upon Mary as well. And if you noticed in our passages today, there was a theme that ran all throughout, was there not? The theme of the tabernacle and temple. It was clear in the first reading, the tabernacle and temple. It was clear in the one on Revelation. And I will, will uh, hopefully be able to articulate for us, it's also clear in the gospel reading as well. But let's begin with the Old Testament passage, the tabernacle. We have the glory cloud, the Shekinah, comes down and rests on the, ta- on the tabernacle. And this we know that now God is present with his people. We've seen this already when Moses went up to Sinai 
and he encountered God, and God gave him the architectural plan, if you will, for the tabernacle as well. The, the, the cloud descends on Sinai. And then at the end of our passage, we heard that the cloud would lead them, lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. And, and conversely, the fire, which is nothing but the cloud, but at night, the fire leads them at night as well. And where else have we seen fire already in, in, in the book of Exodus? We've seen fire at the burning bush. So we're familiar with God's presence coming down amidst his creation in terms of fire in this glory cloud. And I, and I think this, the, the, the fire and the burning bush is maybe one of the best images we can have to think about the way that God wants to relate to his creation. In this, we see a non-competitive relationship between God and the world. They're of different orders of being. I don't want to get too philosophical here, but, but that's what we're talking about here. And what do I mean by that? God is not a physical thing, a physical object, right? And so when he is present with us, he doesn't have to displace us in any sort of way. Unlike other material things, right? A materialistic philosophy always means displacement of one thing from another. So it always means competition. Indeed, it always means survival of the fittest. But in an order of God and his generosity, God who is, who, is, who is a being beyond being, if you will, he can be completely present without displacing anything. Indeed, his very presence is what makes things most alive. See, God is not a, a created or finite thing. In him we live and move and have our being. We are the bush and he is the fire. He's a fire that does not destroy He's a communion that does not absorb us, but rather brings us into life, into freedom. God is everywhere, and because he's everywhere, indeed, we can even say he's, in fact, nowhere. God is in every place, and the way he's in every place is because he's in no place at all, because he's not a thing, an object that can be placed somewhere. He is in all things, and all things are in him because he is no thing at all that can be measured, right, or put into a statistic. He is beyond all this materiality way of measuring things. And it's hard for us to think. I was trying to tell a friend this the other day, and he just sort of said, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm so amazed by it, and yet I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but Augustine, in a way, sums it up really well when he says, God is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. God is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. And it's only when sin comes into our lives, when we reject this intimacy, when we reject this relation, that the world begins to become opaque to us. It ceases to be a bush on fire with the presence of God and just simply becomes a bush for us to do whatever we want to it. But God desires to be intimate to us, he, he desires to be with us in such a way that we don't have to fear our freedom being taken away by his presence. But indeed, by inviting him, receiving him into our lives, we become more free, more who we are meant to be. The world indeed is meant to be this burning bush. It's meant to be a tabernacle of God. And in fact, we see this in the creation story itself. It's ordered to the seventh day. The seventh day God rests. What in the world is God doing resting? he tired? Did he get worn out? A hard work day, and so he just needed to relax for a while? No, of course. God does not rest because he's tired. He rests in the way that a king rests in his palace. He rests in the way that the ancient gods, of course, he himself being beyond any of these ancient gods, he rests in the way the ancient gods rested in their temples. This is where they lived, where they dwelt. 
And the, and the psalmist even says this, that God rests in the tabernacle, in his dwelling place. So this resting is God coming to dwell in the very tabernacle he just made, which is nothing less but the whole cosmos itself. That God had just made for himself a tabernacle and temple when he created the world. And he comes to rest in it on the seventh day and dwell there. And of course, the seventh day is also ordered to worship, to the Sabbath. And so we see that all of creation is ordered to worship, to be offered to God in praise and thanksgiving. The church, of course, has taken this up, and this is exactly what we do when we present our offerings, and they're taken up in the wine and the bread and offered to God as an oblation of all of creation. Adam was called to work and keep the garden. Of course, in a general sense, we can say he was called to be a gardener, to tend for the garden, to bring it to its fruition. That is true. But these words, work and keep, you know where else these words are used together in the Old Testament? For the priests who are called to work and keep the temple, the tabernacle. They're to work it, to care for it, to do the offerings. They're also called to keep it, to guard it, like a gardener guards the garden, right? They're to guard it, keep it holy. This is exactly what Adam was called to do, was to work and keep the garden. In a way, you could say Adam is a priest, and one of his first sins was not, was, was not, was not to guard the garden. He was, he was called to guard the garden and keep it holy, and instead he let sin enter in. And, and, and we also see this, so we see this in creation, creation itself already made to be a tabernacle. We also see it in the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle, Moses goes up, when he receives the architectural picture of, of, of the design for the tabernacle on sign, now he goes up for how many days? Six, and then on the seventh, God speaks to him. The ancient fathers of the church saw this as, as, as Moses seen the creation of the world. That he went up in the glory cloud and saw the creation of the world. And from there, he saw the eternal forms of all things, such that the tabernacle was called to be an image and copy of these things. The book of Hebrews says exactly this. That the tabernacle was called to be an image and copy of the eternal worship of heaven. Also in the tabernacle, so then he goes and builds the tabernacle. And we, we heard it read, some of the things that are read, the curtain of the tabernacle. We could see it representing the firmament that divides heaven from earth, that divides the holy of holies, the place of deepest heaven, from the outer tent. The bronze basin filled with water represents the placid waters that God comes and calms the chaos of creation, making it a placid waters. The pillars of the tabernacle are carved with engraven image, with images that are from Eden, flowers and gourds, cherubs. The menorah, the candlestick, a picture of the tree of life, indeed a tree on fire with God's presence, like a burning bush. Indeed, most importantly, the tabernacle, the temple, was the place where God walked and met with his people, just as he did with Adam and Eve at the beginning. The tabernacle, in a sense, is a microcosm of what creation was always called to be, and indeed someday will be, when God will once again be present with his people. And at the very epicenter of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, the very epicenter. And here we turn to Mary, who, I will just put this forth, is in a way the embodiment of the tabernacle, and even embodiment the personification of creation under grace. Of course, Jesus himself, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. He is the fulfillment of it. And inside of this, so is Mary. In no way in competition with one another. And so in our gospel reading, we see this address it says, greetings, or famously, hail, Mary, 
or rejoice is another way to interpret it. It's interesting that it, what's not used here is peace or arene or shalom, the sort of normal place of address. But instead, it's this other word, kaire, rejoice. You know where else we see this is in Zephaniah's prophecy when he's addressing the daughter of Zion, who is the personification of the Ark of the Covenant. So here we're supposed to immediately see upon this address, ooh, this is the... This is the daughter of Zion that's being addressed once again. And then Mary, of course, she hears this, and she says, how can this be according to me? How can this be? And he he says, well, well, here's what's going to happen. You know that glory cloud? It's going to overshadow you. This word overshadow is indeed used in Luke's gospel. It's a word very rarely used. It's used in the Septuagint to describe the Shekinah glory coming down to overshadow the tabernacle. And it rests upon the Ark of the Covenant permanently. And now the glory cloud comes down again upon Mary. One more thing in, this, in the gospel reading, one that goes beyond our reading, but, but you're all probably familiar with it, is, is, John the, is, this, is Mary goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Okay, And you have this interesting encounter where she goes to visit Elizabeth, and the, the child in Elizabeth's womb, who we know to be John the Baptist, leaps. It's a strange thing. Right? Have you ever thought, what is, what is going on in this? What is this leaping? Right? Now, did she, just, you know, did she eat something strange and the child leaps? Right? No, of course, the child leaps in the presence of Mary. Why? What is this? Well, you know the other time where this leaping word is used again in the Septuagint and the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is for David. When the Ark of the Covenant is brought back, it's been lost. And the Ark of the Covenant is brought back into the holy city, and David leaps for joy, because the Ark and the Covenant has been returned. And now John the Baptist leaps for joy because the Ark of the Covenant has been returned in the person of Mary, who carries the presence of God within her. So should we leap for Jesus or for Mary? Well, yes. Yes. Should we love God or love creation? Yes. In the right order. We leap for Mary because she carried Of course, the only reason that we leap for Mary is because she carried Jesus within her, but she did carry Jesus within her. And so in order to leap for Jesus, he had to leap for Mary as well. Creation from the beginning was made for the indwelling of God, and Mary embodied this. Later on, we will see that the tongues of fire come down to rest upon the church, once again becoming a burning bush. Of course, the church is called to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see this relationship that Mary, in a way, is the personification of the church. And in a way, she receives in the middle of time what would be true of all of Christians at the end of time, to be the very presence of God. And this beautiful, sort of fascinating and um, even confusing images that we see in Revelation, of course, or John sees this vision of the temple. The temple opens up, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, and out comes a woman. And this woman bears a child. And of course, you see this imagery, I think it to be both sort of the, the, old, the whole Old Testament people of God and Mary and the church all included in this fruitful image. And the final image we see in the, in the whole of Scripture, right, is once again a, a woman descending from heaven, but she's also a temple. I mean, you, you see that this is what the woman descends, but it's also a temple descending at once. So that you see the coming together of the woman and the temple in the book of Revelation. This is hard for us because we're, uh, I mean, it's hard for me. Let me just say this. It can be hard for me because I know that Jesus is the one and only mediator between 
between the world and God. Jesus is the mediator. In, he, in himself, the two have become one flesh, in Christ. And at the same time, because of the absolute generosity of God, by the mere fact of creation and most of all redemption, he includes us to be his mediators in Christ as well. That mediation, indeed, is the generosity of God, inviting you and me to be mediators as well to others. Not, of course, apart from Christ, not without Christ, but in Christ, bringing people to Christ, bearing fruit, just as Mary has done. And so this is why we can come to Mary and ask her, even dare I say, to intercede on our behalf. Not that she's, she's interceding, she's praying for us to Christ. Can I say that? Mary's prayers are to the Father, to Christ as well. And so this question of mediation is the question of creation. Creation is this mediation bringing us to God. It's the generosity of God, letting others participate in his love in his mission for the world. You and I were made for the indwelling of God. We were made to be mediators. And Mary is this icon, this picture of, a, of for us to see. And so in, in a way, one of the most sort of gentle and wonderful things we can do is just meditate on this icon of faith, this icon of, of, of creation under grace. And this is what I encourage you to do when, when sort of uh, maybe you're not sure what to do with all this Mary stuff, or you just want to sort of push it away and not think of it, I would just say just, just think about her for a while and ask the Lord, ask the Lord to help, to help you see the beauty of, of Mary, our mother. The mother if, we are bro- if Christ calls us his brothers and sisters, then she's our mother as well. And in a spiritual sense, gives birth to every new child of God. And so through, uh, through Christ, she and the Father invite us into God's family as well. And so, uh, yeah, this, I just invite you to meditate on, on her in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Amen? In the name of the Father, Amen. Son, and Holy Spirit.